Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. But you look at these two parties now and she is on the run with her children back in hiding and they'll never have a normal life. Police who are involved, they've moved on with their life, they're getting promotions, there probably won't be any criminal investigations. And yes, they've apologised as a force and they say it was, you know, it was a systemic issue and there wasn't any individual officer at fault. It's just, it still seems inequitable. That's a voice very well known to Australian true crime fans. It is, of course, journalist Rachel Brown, who is the host of ABC podcast Trace. 
In season one of Trace, Rachel and one of Australia's most trusted men, retired homicide detective Ron Idles, reinvestigated one of his old cases, the unsolved murder of Maria James. Maria was the single mother of two sons, one of whom was profoundly disabled. He disclosed to her that he was being sexually abused by the parish priest and she planned to confront the man on the morning she was murdered. I won't spoil it for you in case you haven't heard it yet, but suffice to say that by the time Rachel and Ron were done, the Victorian coroner announced there was to be another inquest into the 38-year cold case of Maria James. After such a great outcome from that first series, Rachel Brown could have done just about anything with the second. The easiest thing in the world would have been for her to make another series about a cold case. She could have found another beautiful family. As we know, there are unfortunately lots of them in similar situations. And she could have looked like a hero again. But that's not what she chose to do. Rachel Brown chose instead to help lawyer X, Nicola Gobbo, tell her story. And whatever you think about it, it's certainly a bold and exciting choice for a journalist to make at this moment in her career. The first person to ever accuse Nicola Gobbo publicly of informing on them to Victoria Police while also acting as their legal counsel was none other than disgraced former drug squad detective Paul Dale, who joined us earlier this year. You may or may not recall that Paul was charged by our friend Charlie Bazina for the murder of another police informant, Terry Hodson, in 2004. It was drug dealer Carl Williams who accused Paul Dale of asking him to help with the murder. And the key piece of evidence against Paul was a recording made by Nicola Gobbo of a conversation between the two of them in which he allegedly admitted to asking for Carl's help. So when Paul discovered that the recording existed, he accused Nicola of breaching their client-lawyer privilege. She argued that she'd only ever spoken to him as a friend. He and Vicky Petratus wrote about it in his memoir in 2013, but they had no idea at the time that they were so close to uncovering the Lawyer X scandal. Here's what Paul Dale had to say to us in March this year about his memories of that time. When I was originally arrested for the murder, I was remanded in custody, and then I can't remember how long it was. I think it was certainly in the next week or two, we're preparing for my bail application. Tony Hargraves, who's a very prominent criminal barrister who the police association use, and and hence any serving police officers or police officers that have any issues uh, also have to use him. Tony came and visited me out at the Acacia Unit Bowen Prison. We're in an interview room, uh, visitor's room type thing, and he tells me, well, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, well, at that stage, all I knew that she'd made, she'd tape recorded me and made a statement. Look, yes, I knew her professionally, yeah, personally, yeah, and yeah, you were mates, yeah, absolutely, and and that's and I've got to be mindful there because they always try and use that fact that I knew her socially was no, she was never providing him with any legal advice, you know, and that's the that's. The thing they've had to run, you know, the defence they've had to run all the time because they knew if it got found out that she was giving information against her own clients, which is now has been found out, but back then clearly they had a real major issue because they had had her in, informing for some years, which, yes, as you said, I had no idea about that. But so to find out, Nicola Gobbo, this was the most high-profile criminal barrister in our state at that time. You did not 
pick up a paper or watch the news without seeing Nicola Gobbo representing Tony Mockbell, Carl Williams or any number of high-profile criminals coming in and out of the Supreme Court or the courts, she was known by us at the drug squad to be the person to go to to get you bail. And that's why you went to her. And that's why I went to her from the very start. You weren't directed to her? No. By anyone? You just went went to her? From the very first time I was arrested back in the Dublin Street thing and, and I was read my rights and we got back to the Ethical Standards Department and it became quite clear to me through the interview that, hang on a minute, there's more to this um you know it came clear that Hodson has made allegations and whatnot and I thought no well actually I think I do need to speak to a lawyer Nicola Gobbo was the person I called um and then she attended upon me and then attended upon me at the at the bail you know down in the cells and continued to assist me over the next number of years clearly unbeknownst to me she was a police informer and unbeknownst to any to all her clients at the time See, that's the moment i would have thought this is a this something huge going on here look it's i I, I went tingly actually when you said it and i know my voice has probably changed because the hairs do go up in the back of my neck because it's it's at a time when you're at your lowest mentally i've been completely isolated i've been picked out of the APCO service station, which I operated and, and ran as my own business for a number of years at that stage. I've got my child and my wife back there. I'm there at work early in the morning. 20 police cars turn up after they flew in a helicopter up there because it's how important it was to arrest Paul Dale in, in dramatic scenes and go from there straight from being remanded there straight down to Bowen Prison, straight into this isolation unit. There I am in a bright red jumpsuit, all zipped up, sh- shackled, and um, and placed in this tiny little two-and-a-half by two-and-a-half metre cell and left there for six weeks. Now, Tony came and seen me within about the two weeks and we were going to make a bail application, and that's when he told me about Nicola Gobbo. I guess the, the full the full story doesn't come out for some time, obviously, but it, it was incredible, and, and all I did was I remember standing up off the chair and walking around and Tony sitting there and, because um, no one could actually physically get to near me other than a lawyer back then. Uh, mind you, she'd visited me in jail as well. No and, and, way. Yeah, so she'd visited me in the fir- when I was first remanded back in 02, 03, whatever that was. She visited upon me as my lawyer and I gave her a number of documents that I'd been sitting in my isolation unit at Port Phillip and I'd been given access to a pen and paper and so I was making all these notes in regards to, you know, Hodson, Michel, you know, the Operation Gallup and all the things that, you know, that I say, well, these go to show that I couldn't possibly be involved in that. I gave that all to her. She took it straight to her police handlers and gave it to them. Now, if that's not legally professional privilege breach, oh, yeah, I no mean, there's doubt. no clearer. I mean, yeah. she signs in as a lawyer. She comes and visits me as a lawyer. Nicola Gobodu offered to act for me in a pro bono sense, and that's, you know, a lot of people ask me, why would a high-profile criminal barrister ever do it for free? Well, she did it for a lot of people for free, believe it or not. She was really trying to be the person in the scene. And so to have, and my case was quite high-profile as well, even back then, she wanted to be the person to be seen doing all these high-profile matters. That's the way I saw it. Now I look back, now I know she was targeted. She was told, get involved with this bloke, get involved in any of these cases, get all the information you can, and we'll work out whether we'll disclose it, use it, or whatever. But it's not for the police to do that, because once you come to court, the obligations on the prosecution are to provide all the relevant information. And I think it's goddamn relevant that the barrister that people are using is a police informant. 
This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Thanks to the Geelong Regional Library Corporation, I had the opportunity to talk to both Vicky Petratus and Rachel Brown a couple of nights ago about the two subjects of their latest work. In Rachel's case, it's Series 2 of her podcast, Trace, The Informer. And in Vicky's case, it's an updated re-release of Paul Dale's memoir, Cops, Drugs, Lawyer X and Me. Now, Vicky and Rachel are anything but disgraced. In fact, they're both quite famously scrupulous and meticulously professional operators. So I had to start by asking them what attracted them to these two characters, who most people are happy to write off as inveterate liars and narcissists. So the word disgrace that you just um, attached to Paul Dale, I and everyone listening will understand if you're a, if you're a lover of words and books and stories and storytelling, words hold a lot of power and can do a lot of damage. And as Paul Dale would argue, the fact that his that disgrace got attached to him will haunt him for the rest of his life. I was interested in Nicola Gogo because I felt like this is before I reached out to her to be involved in the second podcast that she had become almost a caricature, um, that she wasn't a real person. We knew, we heard she was a slut, a narcissist, a treacherous bitch. You know, she snorted cocaine with her clients. She slept with cops. And all these words and these ideas were attached to her, but I, I was interested. I'm like, oh, we've never heard from her. You know, I wonder how she would respond to this. And I don't know whether that was me as a journalist or me as a woman or me as someone interested in the gangland era. And I was fascinated by why. And that was the first question on the TV interview that ran in December. Why would someone who she was on track to be a QC yep. or an SE, why would someone gamble that their livelihood and their life potentially taking on these dangerous criminals? So I wanted to hear it from her and I think that that's really important and there'd be a lot of people that I think might be critical of me and, and I have read some reviews saying that, you know, I've let the, the, the podcast lets her play the victim. I was interested in, in, in hearing her story because we hadn't heard her story yet before the ABC got her. Um, so the podcast pretty much does what it says on the tin, that it's her story in her words. But we also obviously tried to round that out with people who would speak, have spoken against her. That was really tricky too because certain crims, cops and lawyers would sledge her to me and I'd be like, great, okay, this is good, I need this, let's tape it. And they'd be like, oh, no, 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 nothing to do with it. So it was really hard getting a well-rounded perspective of her, but I, I still think it was really important to tell her story. And I had massive second album fears after Trace yeah. One. Yeah, I bet. Um, yeah. And that probably might answer your question about why I changed tack because I kind of thought I'm a perfectionist, I'm very stubborn to my own detriment, and I just thought, God, to beat Trace One, that had sparked a new inquest, I'm going to have to maybe solve it, like sort of solve the next one. <laughs> And I didn't really want to go in after being exhausted after Trace One with that kind of pressure on my shoulders. So it was a mixture of those two things marinating me, thinking, well, how do I how do I raise the bar? And so I thought maybe it's better that I change tack, kind of like what Serial did. And and I was and I changed tack to this because I thought, you know what, Maria James was an easy woman to like. Yes. Um, obviously, yes. you know, everyone was sympathetic to that. 
So this was more of a challenge for me as a journalist, not because I wanted people to like Nicola Gobbo, definitely not. She did a lot of things. She's to blame for a lot of things undeniably, but I wanted listeners to see the person behind the punchline. Rachel, I must admit that the first couple of episodes, I was I was getting wild. I was wild. I was saying to myself, what is Rachel doing? Why are you letting this woman just talk her crap? Because right. by that stage, I was very much, I was firmly in the camp of everything that comes out of her mouth is rot. She's a liar. But then I started thinking later along the lines of what you're saying tonight that well, hang on, there's actually plenty of people presenting that story. <laughs> and what I've never actually heard is Nicola's version of all of these events, her, her story. I'm also intrigued by the fact that I know the two of you have had a great relationship for a long time. You are friends and you've respected each other's work for a long time and you've supported each other for a long time. Vicky, you've been really passionate in presenting Paul Dale's version of events, who's another person who most, I'm going to say, most people say, oh, don't listen to a word that comes out of his mouth. He's full of it. Yeah, I think um, Rach and I have known each other for a long time and I don't think, Rach, you knew that I ghost wrote the first book, did you? Because I remember <laughs> it seemed like that long ago that you rang and go, did you ghost write that book? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I thought it was really important for the first book to, uh, it, it was in his words and and I thought that he needed to have that book for him. And all along, I think, for me, it was never about these salacious details. And I was really careful in the book and in my own research that I didn't ever want it to be about whether they had an affair. And I think this is because it, it doesn't really it wasn't relevant and I think even just watching, I was watching again that Sky special on her and you've got all these men talking about her and she's the, you know, she's the, I think they called her the puppeteer and you've got, you know, she slept with so-and-so and and she was this and she was that and I just think, oh, for goodness sake, this is about so much more and I thought there's going to be a whole lot of, Largely men, I I don't know, you might agree, Rach, but largely men judging her for sexual activity. This is about, and it was always about, Victoria Police using unscrupulous and unethical methods to gain convictions. And that was why I wanted to take on Paul's story because, for me, it was always about if they did this to him, if they paid off witnesses, if they offered people no sentence or a life sentence like they did with Terry Hodson, what would people say? And so for me it was always about the process. So if Rachel thinks that Nicola slept with Paul twice and I, Paul's admitted once, that was never going to be an issue no, but there are very much more important details than that at stake. I mean, for one thing, Paul contends that he was receiving legal advice from Nicola. She says, no, it never was. And that's a really crucial point in terms of his life and the way his life has panned out because if she recorded him while giving him legal advice and then passed that recording on to police, well, that's a very important breach that has happened to him. So it's not just salaciousness. Yeah, I think... With Paul's story, it was always when he was the lone voice, as he was when the book came out in 2013, he was the lone voice saying, 
what happened to me, the process of what happened to me was just plain wrong. And when Lawyer X came out, I think when it became such a, a much, much bigger story affecting so many people, I said to Paul, I think now your story has a context and at that point you were the lone voice saying this isn't fair and it's not right the way Victoria Police acted and then all of a sudden he was one of many saying the same thing. So for me it was that's what it was about. That's always been at the core of the story is that if we live in a system that is supposed to be as fair as it can be and just and what I saw happen to him and that book was never written about it wasn't him saying to me, and this is what happened. He came to me right at the start and he had a ute full of boxes and he just said, you read it and you decide, you tell me what you think. And the minute you start reading it, you, you know, I think I sat there going, oh, my God, no, they couldn't have done that. And so really it wasn't, it, it was a, an examination of the documentation that as a citizen I, I was shocked and, and that's what hopefully the book reflects. And I think, Rachel, you mentioned something a moment ago that really requires discussion, and that is the difference in reportage when it comes to Nicola as a woman. Mm. And just in researching for this conversation, I found a report in the Herald Sun from earlier this year in which there's a an issue in the Paul Dale story about a burner phone. And I won't go into why it's important because it's very complicated, but, you know, a burner phone, of course, is a a phone that we have that isn't attached to our names that we can use for various purposes. Now, some people believe that that was attached to a murder, actually. But Paul Dale says, oh, no, 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 no. I had a burner phone so that I could have affairs with police women. That's his, that's his sort of alibi for having the burner phone. And I've only ever heard that story once. And I had to go digging and digging for that story and, and read it once. Nicola, on the other hand, has this constant narrative doesn't she about her sex mm. life and mm. as you said earlier about she's a slut she had an affair with this one with that one and it went for this long and it was this many times and let's talk about that about the difference in reportage and the effect that it has yeah I just I I noticed that a lot but I didn't want to be um I, I did worry about taking this on because and some people have actually said that in reviews that of course you know you'd defend her because you're a female journalist at the ABC and I find that really offensive i I'm not an apologist for Nicola Gobbo. I think she stuffed up. I think she had exits and she didn't take them, you know, and I'm sorry to be crass, but I'm not going to defend a person just because I'm a woman and she's a woman, so they're no. I'll jump to her defence. But, we, but can't, you know, we can't ignore that either. That that disparity is extraordinary and you cannot read a story about her without reference to her sex life. And I did account. And in the early days when all this stuff about her sleeping with cops, I counted five cops in the space of eight years. So it's hardly a deluge. Yeah. And cops that have got in the witness stand, I know for a fact, have had affairs, you know, with other lawyers or journalists, and that was never brought up. So it's, it, there, is, there is an imbalance there. But I also think, and you might find this interesting, that she's such a bolshy character and can be so on the nose that I think that that worked in the police's favour a bit because she took all the attention and she was like, you know, with a magician and misdirection and look over here and you don't yeah. see what's going on. She was that look over here, you know, she was the misdirection and her sex life. And so I think she's been, again, I'm not saying she's blameless. She's 
got a lot to be sorry for. But I think that helped that, you know, people who were also to blame were just rubbing their hands together going beauty, like the attentions on that when, you know, this did not happen in isolation. One woman cannot corrupt an entire justice system. Her use was facilitated by Victoria Police. It was encouraged by Vic Pole. So we need to be talking about that. So I'm actually really glad. Thanks for telling me that you were yelling at me at the start. It's (laughs) nice to hear, but I'm glad that because I knew this would be a slow burn, this podcast, for people to be work out what I'm doing. And I wanted that vacillation because I've done that. I've been like, oh, she's, oh, I feel a bit sorry for her here. And I was like, oh no, how could she do this? And I've vacillated the entire time. So that was what I tried to infuse in the podcast, that very difficult human being to put in a pigeon pigeonhole. But you're right. At the same time, I read today that Simon Overland has a new job. He's about to head to Tasmania to head yeah. up a council there. Um, Stacey Bender, who is a, um, a viewer, has a question. She's asking, what is the ideal perfect outcome for the Royal Commission trial, all the people involved, including the corrupt police? Now, the reason I raised the name of Simon Overland is at one time he, he was very high in the hierarchy of police and he was one of the people in the stand on a number of days when everyone was pointing fingers and saying, whose idea was this and who was running this and who was the most senior person to know about this? And I don't know if we even really got an answer about that. Certainly the commissioner has said that no police will face charges, right, at the end of the Royal Commission. So the Royal Commissioner, um, Margaret McMurdo, has said that she won't name anyone. So this was really interesting. So Council Assisting wrote a 2,000-page gargantuan blistering report into all of this, quite impressive, and they did name names about people they suggested that the Commissioner could find may have committed criminal offences. And the commissioner decided to redact all those names and said, you know, it might prejudice potential future trials. Mm-hmm. So I can see I can see it from her point of view, but to answer the viewer's question makes it very tricky because now who who does it? Victoria Police probably won't investigate itself and therefore then the next best thing is IBAC, the corruption watchdog. And IBAC has already come out and said, well, you don't even think about pursuing individual officers for potential criminal offences. We would need double our budget and would, we would need souped-up investigative resources and powers. So it's looking more and more unlikely that no charges will be laid. So then what have you got? You've got a $40 million Royal Commission paid for by taxpayers and that's, without, that's not including the Victoria Police Bill, the money that they've spent on lawyers and documents and all that jazz so yeah I'm really sorry I can't give you an answer because I'm struggling with it myself I actually don't know what will happen if anything and I think this is what is really sad about this case is that the handling all along has almost guaranteed how can they go back now and um how can they go back now fresh it's just been so corrupted in every way that how do they Will they ever get answers? I don't think they will. Well, I guess we still have to go through the process of the people who are now appealing their convictions. How long do you think that will take, that process? Oh, that's anyone's guess. You know, there's, I think there are eight men at the moment appealing their convictions. Um, a couple of them are coming up for bail apps soon. You know, they, they want to be allowed out while they appeal. That's a lot of money. And then some of these guys will then try to sue the state of Victoria 
I mentioned, I was talking to Vicky earlier about this, actually. There's a guy called Simon Illingworth, a corruption investigator, whistleblower, sorry. And he did an interview with Josie Taylor, my colleague, and he said something really interesting. He's like, well, they deserve compensation. You know, even if they've, like a lot of people might think that they've done the things that they're in jail for, but if they haven't been given a fair defence and a fair hearing and gone through the system correctly, Simon Illingworth said, in my mind, they are innocent and they deserve compensation. Yeah. It's going to cost Victoria a lot of money and a lot of time. Um, And what a great time for Victoria to have this (laughs) problem to spend money on. John Cleary is uh, one of our viewers and he asks, is there any difference between lawyer X's protestations and those of criminal Catholic church priests and brothers, specifically pedophile priest Vince Ryan on Revelation, in that they both seemingly refuse to admit their criminality? which is a very complicated question with many, many, many levels. I don't even really know where to begin with that question. Nicola, has has she been convicted of any crimes? Not that I know of. It's, again, I think if you put that question, if you say Nicola Gobbo is in the same category as as a pedophile or a pedophile denier, I think, again, that, and Rachel knows more about this than me because you sat there for the Royal Commission for that year, but... I think when you've got so many people all acting outside of the law for their noble corruption or however they wanted to justify it, and I think then to say it's all Nicola, I think is is underestimating the breadth of this and I think that Nicola needs to stand alongside all of those senior police officers that were there all the time, all along, having weekly meetings about this. And again, Rach, you hit the nail on the head when you said they're all getting promoted and where's she? Well, not only that, I firmly believe that at least one senior homicide detective ultimately left Victoria Police because she believed that he knew that she was informing and he didn't, but I I believe that she was rattled and that she orchestrated or certainly was part of orchestrating his leaving. You know, so so not only were other police being promoted, but 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 great cops were leaving because of this shenanigans, because they weren't in the tent. They didn't know what was going on. And so they weren't included and and they ultimately left. That, that is another sad thing that a lot of them are so bitter. You know, yes. two of the most blistering statements at the Royal Commission that I've read are from Sol Solomon and Cam yes. Davy, um, yes. two lead investigators on Petra. Saul Solomon is still serving. So for him to have written that statement while still serving, I, I was kind of in awe actually that he was brave enough to do that. But Cam Davy, I think, is now with Fiback, I think. But he wrote an equally blistering statement basically saying that Victoria Police, in trying to hide its use of Nicola Bobo, effectively nobbled the Hodson murder investigation and nobbled any chance that those Hodson kids will have of justice. And that's, Absolutely. that's one of the most powerful lines in the, of the Royal Commission in my book. Yeah. You can see former homicide detective Charlie Bazina in our next live stream event on Saturday, October 10 from 7pm. For tickets, you'll find a link on our Facebook page, on our website, australiantruecrimepodcast.com and at nottodeep.com.au. Thank you so much to our patrons and hello to all of our new patrons who've saved 10% by taking out an annual subscription. Thank you, Taylor O'Brien. Charmy Zielinski, Shillian Tierney, and Melissa Pepper. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Coming up on Australian True Crime, Rachel tells us more about her long days in the press gallery at the recent Royal Commission into the handling of police informants. It's brought about a very dark period for the Victorian organisation. Where to do you think from here for Victoria Police? It's 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 been a really bruising affair for them, hasn't it? And that's a, that's a real shame for them. And I know they have a new commissioner, but it's going to be a very difficult road back. It's a really really tough one because I've got mates who are cops, some who worked in that era. And Josie, there was a line in the last episode when I was chatting to my colleague Josie, and she's right. She said a lot of them genuinely thought they would, and still think they were doing the right thing. They thought they were trying to solve crime. Nicola thought she was helping. I know this sounds bizarre, and I'm not, I'm not an apologist for her, but I do think they all genuinely believed that they were doing the right thing. But you look at these two parties now, and Nicola Gobbo is on the run with her children back in hiding, and they'll never have a normal life. And that's her fate, and that's her price. And I, for the record, I don't know where in the world she is and neither does her lawyer. But police who were involved, as Vicky mentioned, they've moved on with their life, they're getting promotions, there probably won't be any criminal investigations. It's just, it still seems inequitable. And yes, they've apologised as a force and they say it was, you know, it was a systemic issue and there wasn't any individual officer at fault. Um, and they also say procedures have changed and this could happen, never happen again. I just, I'm really, I really struggle with that because we just have to take its word, right? Like there could be other lawyers that are informers that we'll never know about who have their own particular set of, like it, it will be a completely different story. Like if one woman, so much money has been spent on a Royal Commission on one woman when every informer has a different set of procedures that cops are following. Well, am I the only person who feels like I keep, I feel like I keep reading and hearing hints that she's not the only one? When when I interviewed her, she said she knew of two others. So are we going to have <laughs> Royal Commission into both of them? Can I play devil's advocate as I generally do in this conversation and try and really, really take us all back to that time and place though? Because I do think that with this space, we tend to forget as a community how intense that time was and how frightening that time was and particularly when we reached that point when Jason Moran was shot dead in Tarago at 
Auskick in front of not only his children but hundreds of other children and families. The pressure that was on Victoria Police and on the state government to make this stop, mm. there's part of me that, that can understand the ends justifies the means mentality. Oh, totally. You know? It's so easy for me to judge. I completely, you know, hold my, put my hand up to that. Um, there was a really great witness in the Royal Commission called Paul Rowe, and he basically said, we're damned if we do, damned if we, do, if we don't, because if yeah. we found out about a $15 million ecstasy import and we did nothing about it, there'd be an inquiry as to why we potentially let hundreds of people die from ecstasy. So you're right, you're right Michelle, it was, they were struggling and they were losing and they needed a secret weapon, um, and that was her. Paul Rowe's evidence was fascinating, wasn't it? Mm. Because he was saying, you know, he got that information from Nicola Gobbo about the world's biggest ecstasy hall, remember that, coming into Melbourne, and he was like, "What? Well, am I meant to ignore that? Because she's breaking her vow or her mm. ethical position. He's like, that's not my problem. I'm not letting down her clients. That's, mm. you know, and I'm really related to what he was saying. He's like, I'm a copper. Shouldn't I act on whatever information I get? And, Vicky, we have this conversation, it seems like, over and over again about drug squad detectives. We're not speaking specifically about Paul Dale, but drug squad detectives time and time again can end up in trouble. And this seems to be a lot of reasons for that. But one of them tends to be you're trying to get information a lot of the time from people who work in the drug industry, right? Yeah, I think that was part of Paul's problem was as a detective, and not just in the drug squad, but as a detective, that Promotion was based on how many informants that you could source and get on the books. So part of their job to go out and meet with all sorts of people and try and get intel from them, that's that's where you got it. But going back to your point, the end justifies the means, and I've heard that over and over again by serving police officers and as an you know as an excuse or as an noble corruption idea, right? And I, I actually say, okay, well, let's unpack this. The end justifies the means. What is the end? Yeah. And as Rachel pointed out, this has cost $40 million just for the Royal Commission. Now, I thought I was being kind of overly generous when I estimated in the book that this will cost the taxpayer all up, including the Royal Commission. At that stage, the budget was $30 million. But it will cost us $50 million and it will release prisoners that may or may not have done what they were convicted of into the community. So when you start hearing the end justifies the means, ask yourself what is the end? Because the end is a circus, a very expensive circus where I think can we trust the people at the top? I think that's going to be an issue for all of us. Can you trust Victoria Police? Uh, I mean, and I've got friends that are in the police force too and they are amazing people but but, but is but, there an argument, Vicky, is there an argument that we've almost overshot the runway, that the end could have been effectively the end of the gang war? We could have left it at that, essentially, and nobody needed to know all of this stuff was the back end of, of how that happened. And the people who are in jail, can't they be there? Weren't they bad people doing bad things? But you, we don't know, and, and we have these processes. Don't we? Like when Margaret McMurdo opened the Royal Commission, and she said a few really, really good things. One, she said when people can uh, consult a lawyer, uh, whether they pay, whether as a friend, where, and I thought that's specifically for including a call. But, you know, she talks about we have these processes for a reason because they have been judged the fairest and tested year after year. 
and it is up to no one to come along and say, well, you know, I mean, a lawyer isn't supposed to dog on her clients, but the end justifies the means. And it's like you can't, you can't, you've got to get them fair and square or not at all. And I think we've all had convictions where, you know, the public, not knowing half the information, has gone, oh, that's a bad conviction and he was definitely guilty. But it's like we have these processes. If they are elastic, then everyone's in danger. And I know, Rachel, that, you know, that your last episode of the podcast and wondering whether or not police could bug a phone without uh, a proper warrant or whether they could spy on. I certainly had times when I was uh, working on Paul Dale's book where I heard really strange clickings on my phone. Uh, I had some really weird experiences where my sister who was living with us at the time, she thought she heard us come home from work and called out and then she heard the door downstairs close. And I, I don't know what was happening, but would it surprise me if I was under surveillance? Not at all. And I think that you know, can they overstep marks? Can they, could they bug my phone? I'm, I'm the most boring person ever and they wouldn't get anything, but did they? And, and I think we need to trust in our police force and, and at the moment I think working on this story really rattled my trust and I've been writing positive police stories for 25 years about all the wonderful work that they do, but this is not one of them. No, well, you can both attest to the fact that through this process we've discovered that to protect the secret of Nicola Gobbo being an informant, a lot of things were done that we would never have believed would have been done. Things happened that we would never have believed, right? What's shocked you, Rachel? What's left you shook? Um, what we were just talking about, actually, I was just trying to find a note in my in my little notepad and I found it and I made a note to myself and Vicky was touching on this then. It's, you know, it's easy for us as a society to look at it and say, well, you know, they're gangland, they're thugs, it's no big deal. But the minute you accept that, that blurs the line for everyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it robs the Hodson kids of justice for their family. And, and that is the worry that in their desperation that police possibly started behaving like the people that they're trying to stop. You know, so once we start accepting that blurred lines, as Vicky said, it has trickle down effects for society. And yes, they might, some of those people might deserve to be in jail, but we need to play by our system, right? That's our, that's our rule of democracy. That's our fundamental tenet that everyone deserves the right to a fair trial. And I don't think you can mess with that. And I'm pretty unapologetic about that. And some of these guys were very dangerous criminals, but yeah, you just can't mess with the start because it's then what What about if you're charged with a crime, Michelle, and, you know, and cops bend the rule a little bit and, you know, it's like boiling a, boiling a frog. You know, you just get that death by degrees. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I know there are plenty of people who think I'm a bad person, and there, but there are plenty of people who think I'm not. So it's like who is the judge? It just depends on who you get on the day, doesn't it? So that's why we need actual written down laws, not not just a person who, who gets to reckon it. Jodie Skinner would like to know, Rachel, if you've heard from Nicola no. during the process. No, she, you don't know if she's listening or you haven't heard any feedback. No, so as I said in the podcast, the last time I heard from her, the last time she called me was around the time that's in the last episode when she was going through customs when she came back into Australia um, in Brisbane. And then the, the eerie time, the phone potential phone interception in her lawyer's office. That was early this year. 
And so that was, I thought, well, great, I can put some questions to her lawyer and fill in some gaps. So no, no, not since then. And that was whole, that was very strange. The phone line cut out and then her lawyer, Tim Tobin, went across to check if she'd emailed him to say, oh, my phone's died or something like that. Um, and there was an email from her saying, I think they know who you have there, as in me and Josie in his chambers. That freaked me out. You asked, you were asking me if anything should, that, that really, not to be melodramatic, but that gave me chills. And then his computer died. It just crashed. Went back to uh, factory settings, you know, choose your language, Spanish, Italian. The P, his PA said she'd never seen anything like it before. It was asking for his office database codes. And this is a Vic Bar computer. So that was really worrying. And I walked away and I thought, have I been doing this for too long? Am I, am I paranoid? You know, am I jumping to conclusions? Um, and this is exactly what the Royal Commission was about, you know, police interfering in that sacred lawyer-client communication. So I went home and I thought, no, it just must be a terrible coincidence. But Tim Tobin reached out to his IT technician who said that it looked like his computer had been accessed and shut down remotely. Oh. And that to me is quite, I found that quite chilling. Uh, so I, well, I didn't get to put any questions to her that day and that was early this year. Tim Tobin reached out to Victoria Police and said, have you been interfering with my communications? And they, to give them a right of reply, they he called him back and said, no, it wasn't us. We can't do anything like that. Um, so that's, that day is still a mystery to me. John Cleary, who is watching, says the just a few bad eggs excuse offered time and time again in every failure of governance, banking, aged care, to cover rotten culture, which survives despite royal commissions, and the halo effect being removed temporarily. Now, I think what he's getting at there, and correct me if I'm wrong, wrong, John, but I think maybe is the idea that the royal commissions give the impression that they've had a big broom and swept away the bad eggs, but then it doesn't feel like there's some firm closure to come out of these things sometimes. You've both sort of commented on, on that. This is the first time we had a scandal. I think we're always a bit smug in Victoria because New South Wales seemed to have so many different uh, scandals and we had our window shutters, remember that, Operation Bart, and yeah. people were, I don't know, claiming kickbacks from broken windows or something like that, and it was like, gee, if that's the worst Victoria Police can do uh, compared to what other people could do. And I think when this hit, it wasn't a, a couple of bad eggs in a police station or it wasn't a, a particular CIV or the drug squad. This came from the very top, the highest office in the police force. And people, uh, Overland knew, Ashton knew, Cornelius knew, they all were a party to what went on and, and none of them, I think Ronnie at all seemed to be the only one that just went, hold on a minute. No, no, this is wrong. I don't care why you're doing it. This is wrong. This is dangerous. And I, I think that's it. whether it's a culture, I don't know. And as we said before, a lot of those people are being promoted. So I don't know that they're sweeping out. Nicola seems to be the one that's suffering here. Well, I don't, I don't think Mark she's the only one. I think we've mentioned a few other people who have continued to be vilified, frankly, for their not joining the club. And it'll, um, you raise an interesting point there. The culture of going the line, one particular thing that I heard at the commission really stuck with me, and the days could be quite drab, so if something stuck, it was quite 
poignant. And it was Tony Biggin and he was running at the time the source unit that looked after informants. And he said that Officer Black, which is a pseudonym, who did the report into whether or not she should, whether or not Nicola should be turned into a witness, um, so private informer into a public witness to testify against Paul Dale. And he said, you know, no, bad idea, could lead to a death, could expose our secrets, could expose methodology. And Biggin was saying that he, in the end, had to then stick up for Tony Biggin because he said if he submitted a report like that and if Sandy White did, another key handler, they would have a black mark against their name for the rest of their career. But that stuck with me because I thought, God, this is someone, and the council assisting picked up on that. It, it was like, hang on, so he will have a black mark against his name for warning Victoria Police that their informer could be murdered. And Biggin said, yes, he would have. So I felt nervous for him having to hand over that report, so I stuck up for him. And, and that, that's, that's telling in an organisational perspective, I think, that officers feel like they can't speak up. It's um, get on the train or get under it was Simon Illingsworth's view of that. And he thinks that that culture still persists today. I think so. And I think some retired police are still suffering from that culture today, frankly. Mm. Hmm. Anonymous attendee, it sounds like it's going to be a really juicy question, but it's it's not anonymous. It's just <laughs> I don't know the full details of the Nicola Gobbo story, but from what I've seen, she appears to always want to portray herself as a victim. No doubt there is some truth to this, but she doesn't appear to take any responsibility for her own misdeeds. What's your sense of her in this regard? And obviously, Rachel, you're the person who's spent the most time not only with her, but certainly just listening to her. You must have heard her telling her stories a hundred times by the time you've gone through the process of editing mm-hmm. and putting this thing together. So do you get any sense of the a level of responsibility that she accepts? I'm really torn on this one. She probably doesn't accept enough, but she does accept some to a lot. You know, she's admitted that she passed on privileged information. I feel like with her, and I've been criticised for this, there's always a but. Yes, I did this, but it was related to a future crime, so I was allowed to do it. Or yes, I did this, but someone could have died. Or yes, I did this, but cops kept circling and coming back and wanted more and more and more. You know, I wanted to pull back and they kept using me. So there was, there's always a threat to take my children. This is controversial, but I must admit in that episode I thought, well, yeah, I sort of understood. That there Surely there is an argument for at least investigating the safety of her children. I mean, she is in hiding from she says Victoria Police, but certainly from gangland figures, right? I mean, she's been messing with Calabrians for crying out loud. Like, isn't there, if she refuses police protection, she says it's because she doesn't feel safe in that environment. But surely for police, isn't there an argument to say, listen, if we have a witness in this situation and we're offering her witness protection, she won't take it and she has small children. We have to call investigators in to see if the children are safe with her. I felt like in your episode you were backing her up and saying, oh, this is terrible to do this to a mother, but I'm at home doing my dishes in my kitchen as a mother thinking, well, nah, I think her children are in danger with her. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about this. So I asked on this a lot. I don't have kids. Stacey's got kids. You don't need Um, to have kids to to think about this. I'm not saying that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no, I know you weren't suggesting that. (laughs) Um, So, yes, I. this is really tricky because... I would, on the face on the face of it, yes, they. I would be worried about the kids because I would be worried about her. And then the more time I spent with her, she's like, she doesn't feel in danger. 
She thinks that she's more useful to some of the criminals alive because she could be their ticket out of jail if they want to appeal their convictions. So she feels like she's more in danger from cops. So why should she join a program, a protection program that cops run? And then her argument is she feels like she'd be safer living in plain sight. And then she said to me, you know, at the height of the gangland war when people like Carl Williams and Jason Moran were being actively hunted and shot at, that Victoria Police never interfered in those gangland families. You know, Vic Pohl never said perhaps we should take Jason Moran's kids away. And Jason Moran ended up getting shot in the front of that minivan with his three kids in the back. So then you come to, well, that's a good point. They never did that. And Josie's like, yeah, but that's also to play devil's advocate. Perhaps they should have because they were in the car when he got shot. So it's a really tough one. And I just came back to, well, yes, Victoria Police, it doesn't sound like they did interfere in other families. So that did make me wonder whether she was right in thinking that they're just using them this time to, you know, they would prefer she's hidden away in silence so she can't say any more to embarrass them. It's a really, I can't give you a straight answer on this because it's really complicated. And it's a really, I never even thought that far through it. That's a really interesting question. Why weren't they looking into those families? Mm. Because, yeah, it does seem obvious that those children were at risk, doesn't it? And I guess, like, you, if someone said to you, it's just really tough, I don't know what I would do, whether I would stay and fight and risk losing my kids or whether I'd give in and go back into hiding. I just, I feel really sorry for the kids and I feel sorry for the Hodson kids. And it's a good kind of juxtaposition of how, intergenerational this gangland war is you know this happened 20 years ago the Hodson kids are still suffering Nicola's kids will never really know a normal childhood yeah that conversation was one of those moments where to my ears I just thought oh gosh she's delusional but you've helped me to accept that you know what I am really conditioned to listen to her that way Mm. so you have you have helped me to understand that that I have listened to years of descriptions of her and never had the opportunity to listen to her so I think it's a really valuable document this podcast in that just as your book Vicky is a valuable document because we have heard so much about these people and it's valuable to at least hear their versions and be able to make up our own minds there's plenty about them and there's plenty of testimony from other people about them everyone has the right to tell their story And when you are silenced, whether you're male or female, when you are silenced, I think that's when I become interested because if someone's trying to silence you, I think it's really important to give people a voice. And I think also it makes other people more careful because they never expect Nicola to have a voice. They didn't expect Paul Dale to have a voice. Thanks again to the Geelong Regional Library Corporation. They're hosting the Word for Word National Nonfiction Festival online this year from November 20 to November 22, so we can all get involved no matter where we are in the world. Thank you to Vicky Petratus, author of Cops, Drugs, Lawyer X and Me, which is out now, and Rachel Brown, presenter of the podcast Trace the Informer. Every episode of that podcast is up now, and we deliberately didn't talk much about the last episode, which is an absolute doozy. So don't muck around. Get to it. Thank you to patrons Ebony Ryland, Vanessa Gordon, Janice Bryden, Aim B, Kate Stevens, Simon Holmes, Michelle Delamar, and Del Guy. And thank you for downloading Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week. And good luck, Nicola, wherever you are.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.